what I wanted to get into today would be Psalms 32. Um, let's read it, and then um, I'll have to pray again, simply because for me, preaching is serious business. Uh, so, just for the calming of my soul, um, definitely wanted to uh, pray. Um, but let's um, let's read uh, Psalms 32, um, and then do that. Um, here we go. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, there shall, not, there shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and brittle. Or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray real fast. Uh, Father God, just thank you uh, for a time in which your word can be proclaimed. Um, pray that you give me clarity of speech. Um, Lord, that you... Um, give me the words to speak to your people today, Lord, and um, it sure will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I will never forget when I was about uh, 14 years old, um, me and my friends thought it would be a good idea uh, to come to a family dollar and steal from family dollar. Uh, so we had devised this plan in which um, we were like, listen, as soon as we get off of school, this is what we're going to do. We're going to grab our bags, empty them out, take them out, put them in the locker, and then we're, we're going to fill our bags with as much stuff as we can get from Family Dollar. So we get up, we huddle together, we're right in front of the Family Dollar, and um, the plan was for just one person, one alibi, uh, to buy something or keep the guy at the register busy enough um, that we can take what we wanted. Um, so we did that. And um, so far, it was a seamless plan. We had to walk out of there with hundreds of dollars of stuff. And you, you know it's tough to do in Family Dollar. Everything's a dollar. So uh, you can imagine how much stuff we were, we were able to take uh, during this time. And I can remember that I had 
spent that time thinking that I had gotten away scot-free, that I was fine um, until around 7.30, 8 o'clock, I hear a knock at the door. I was like, oh, man, who's this? You know, you're paranoid thinking. Um, walking was just my cousin. I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, hey, how you doing? So we're playing, playing games, 9.30. Get another knock. This time it's the police. It seems as though the guy who we had to distract uh, the, the guy at the register um, was caught. And when he was caught, he began to give, us all, give our names away and tell the police exactly who we were. Um, and we were left in a position where um, we, the, the jig was up. They got us. Um, I was reprimanded by my parents, grounded, um, straightened out, as you would put it. Um, and then two days later, my dad, who was off of work at the time, said, hey, come with me. We're going to take a ride. I had knew I was in trouble already. He proceeds to drive up to the same family dollar um, that I had stolen from a couple days earlier. And he walks in, um, and he pays the man up front $350 to replace um, the items that have been stolen by me and my friends. And it was weird to me because at that particular time, I could not figure out why he would do that. So I spent the whole day with him, and at night I finally you know, built up the courage to ask him, hey, Hey, Dad, I'll be honest with you. I know I screwed up. I, I messed up. I, I was wrong. But why did you decide to pay um, the money that me and my, you know, the, for the items that me and my friends have stolen? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Kenny, he said, I just wanted to show you and to let you know that in every case, Someone always has to pay for a transgression. It just doesn't always have to be the person who's did it. And we're reminded of that in the gospel. That someone always has to pay for sin. It just doesn't always have to be the sinner. It doesn't always have to be the person who has transgressed and who has actually committed the crime. And that stuck with me because it brought me right back to um, this psalm, Psalms 32. Now, um, just a brief introduction of Psalms 32. Psalms 32 was classified as one of the most famous, what they call the penitential psalms. Most scholars believe that Psalms 32 is either close related or follows um, Psalms 51. Um, to many, these psalms are considered confessional giants. What that means is, um, if we, if what, we have, what we understand and gain from Psalms 51 is that David in, is in a time in which most scholars believe uh, that he has just uh, finished sinning um, against the Lord and taking a woman who was not his in Bathsheba um, and then sending her husband off to war um, in order to be killed, in order to, you know... Um, and, and indulge in his sinful pleasures. And David in that spot 
is broken. Um, He is distraught at his sin. And he makes a few words to God. Some of them allude to the idea of, Lord, restore me to the joy of my salvation, for I have sinned against you. David is in a low spot. And most people believe that here in Psalms 32, we see David in that renewed place. Um, As David in the end of Psalms 51, which we'll look at um, during this time here, says that if you restore me, I will um, instruct those in your way, those who who have sinned against you. I will um, build them in, in what I know to be true. Some say the psalm, however, is not penitential, but a personal song, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of wisdom and instruction. But I believe that this particular psalm after study is a, is, is, is a perfect hybrid of both. I believe it's penitential in its reflection upon sin, yet it's personal testimony preceding the events of Psalms 51. It's wisdom in the fact that David's overall intent seems to hold the burden to instruct people not to fall into the same plight. And lastly, I believe that we see a third element of this psalm in which the psalm is doctrinal, in that this topic of sin and forgiveness are the essential focal points of the gospel. Without this idea of sinners having this relief that once they come into repentance, they can now come to God with their sins and be forgiven, this is an essential piece of what we know the gospel to be. So as we get into this, uh, we see David in three ways in transition from this psalm as it pertains to his events. We see David now in the following, restored by God from his fall from sin. We see David renewed by the power of the gospel and his purpose. And we see David in this psalm resolved and instructing us to embrace what he describes as the blessing of forgiveness. So let's read the first two verses and let's, um, let's elaborate on it here. He, start, he starts off the psalm. He says, Blessing or blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's park it here. Um, The word blessed stands out. Because the word blessed can mean happy state or feeling. As in what we see in this most standard definition. Obviously. Blessed can be directly attached to feeling. However. Blessed can also correspond with being personally and positionally fortunate. And sometimes this idea is completely removed from feeling or emotion. So it's these two aspects that that work together in conjunction. Blessed can mean blessed, elated, happy, understanding of of emotionally blessed. But then blessed can be what we are positionally with God, being blessed, fortunate, and removed from any circumstance that would damn us due, due to our penalties of sin. 
So we'd see both. Both are proper definitions of how blessed can be introduced, and I believe both are introduced in this passage. We see David saying, blessed, and I believe that the emotional was carried out later when he says in, in verse 11 to be glad in the Lord and rejoice because we understand this blessedness of being positionally right. Because we understand that we are blessed positionally, we then follow in the action of being blessed in a happy state and understanding that that position in which the Lord has imparted to us now causes and brings about emotion. It's not just about uh, being positionally um, made right, but also understanding that position and, and it bringing joy to our souls. In the first two verses, we see, um, we see three words for sin for, that for those reading the psalm would have seen a little more clearly an intent within the original language. David touches a wide variety of sins here and to the naked eye, we wouldn't catch it. The three words David uses in these verses are transgression, which can be described as the generic word sin and iniquity. Now, though David is describing its sin in totality, he uses these three words which bring about a distinction and this helps cover a lot of ground. First, he uses transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression can be better defined as rebellion, a bucking against God's standard, right? So we see, we see blessed is those whose transgression. Blessed are those who, who know the standard, who know what God requires, yet, ah, they buck against it. They, blessed, is the, blessed are those people whose, whose transgressions aren't held against them, who buck against the standard. Right? Then he uses sin, he says, whose sin is covered. Right? This is the idea, for most scholars, as failure. Right? Or, 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 mistaken, or mistakes in, in sin. The idea in which we see, you know... Um, um, oops, I'm sorry, but yet that sorry, that, that, that sin is, is yet sin. Um, even, if, even if it's not a reached, a reached after goal, it's still failure, which makes it sin. So we see that here. He covers that in the generic word of sin. A missing of the mark is how we would describe it. And then he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And that word iniquity, um, actually in this verse, can pertain to um, perversion, which we all know is uh, to improperly change something that is good. Um, and now it's important that he does this, that he uses three different words to describe this main topic, because though he's talking about sin, he doesn't skip, he doesn't just gloss over it. He breaks down different aspects in which sin can be present. The transgressions of sin, sin in itself, a missing of the mark, and then he says iniquity. Three different ways to describe sins, but with three different avenues and how they're played out in the believer's life. 
all being sin, but blessed in the fact that the Lord holds no stoppage in what he's willing to forgive. I feel like that's the heart of David's intent. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Then whose sin is forgiven, who's missing the mark is forgiven. And then also blesses the man who the Lord counts no iniquity. And we also believe, as we transition to the latter part of the verse, we also believe that this blessing comes from those who have come to a resolve to stop trying to lessen the blow of sin by themselves with covering it up with deceit. As we see here, he says, and the, Lord counts in, and the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's this idea of that blessing, these, the, the, a man being blessed in regards to how, how the Lord is blessing him. We see that in this blessing only comes to those who, who, who stop trying to, to, to hide it themselves or think that they can take care of the sin. He elaborates on this point as he gets into the idea of confession um, a little bit later. Verse 3, he says, um, verse 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Selah. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted, wasted away. Sin unconfessed was ruining David. And it appears that in the reading and study that scholars are somewhat divided on the interpretation of these verses. On one hand, some say David faced actual and literal repercussions physically that affected him in his time of sin. And others would say, no, 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 of course, of course not. This isn't true. This is simply poetic language as in all the members in notion that he was simply feeling off. His bones weren't literally wasting away and he wasn't literally feeling repercussions, but David was just feeling off or affected by his sin. No matter which way you lean by his interpretation, we do see that sin was indeed uh, killing him. And it was visible in some effect. If not physically, it was visible in his countenance and how David responded to others. Sin's effects sometimes um, are not necessarily visible to other people, but definitely have a killing effect to one's body whether that be spiritually or physically. For some of you guys may not know, I actually work um, for a company called Terminex. Um, they are described as the number one pest control company in the world. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is we learn all these random facts about bugs and how um, bugs are dangerous. And we're supposed to use these as sale tactics to get people to, to respond and buy pest control when they call us and tell us that they have a ropes problem or a bug problem. And um, when I thought of this, I kind of thought of the example of the idea of like, if I asked you guys, what is the 
number one animal killer on average, most of you guys would probably say it's a pretty ferocious beast. Y'all would say, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure lions kill a lot of people. I'm sure sharks do a lot of damage, maybe. People going to the water where in Florida, they probably do the most damage. Maybe rhinos, probably, probably their horn. You know what I mean? Wherever you're at, maybe people in the jungle are getting killed. That's actually not the case. You would be surprised what it is. The number one animal killer, or animal if you want to describe it as such, is actually the mosquito. Yeah, weird, right? A mosquito actually has killed 700,000 people a year. Mosquitoes do that. And the weird part about it is it's, a, it's, it's something that we wouldn't necessarily pay attention to. No one thinks when a mosquito flies around in the yard that it will actually kill you. But there's 700,000 people who felt that same pinch and died because of it. And I believe that this idea that David is trying to expound on is the fact that when you keep silent, originally, when, when you're not confessing sin, you think, ah, well, who am I really hurting? It's not really taken into account until you begin to see the effects of it, like death, or until you hear a fact that a small mosquito in which you paid no attention to kills 700,000 people a year. And then you go, man, now, now all of a sudden it has this, this weight to it. it. It has this importance to you like, man, I, now, that it's, now that I understand it's dangerous, I won't do it again. And that's what we see when David's members are affected by his silence. Whether, whether or not personally, visibly or physically, but even within his soul. When he kept silent, his bones wasted away and his groaning all day long. His heart was heavy upon him. Um, what we do know that is clear in David's depiction in verse 3 and 4 is that great is the grief that comes from sin. But what we also come to find and understand in the gospel is though great is the grief that comes from sin, greater it's the grace that comes from forgiveness. Psalms 1, you guys don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Um, David follows that along and he says uh, at the end of verse 4. He says, for day and night your hand, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalms 1 verse 3 seems to scream the opposite of David's depiction in Psalms 32. Uh, listen, listen to what Psalms 1 verse 3 says. It says, He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. What's interesting is in looking at Psalms 1 verse 3, that the tree described in its intent, and we don't, have, we don't have a whole lot of time to look at this verse, but um, as you study it on your own, the tree that's described in its intent in this verse is referenced to be in a dry climate, but despite those conditions, continues to yield fruit due 
to its supply of water. It prospers because of its attached dependence on its life source, which is the water. In the same way, verse 4 of Psalms 32, David describes his lack of attachment and lack of spiritual prosperity to the attachment of the heat of the summer, or in other words, a dry climate lacking the source of life. It's this idea of when attached to the life source, we live and prosper. When detached from the life source, not so much. Verse 4. Let's move, let's move. Looking at the time, let's move. Uh, Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Unconfessed sin ruins, but confession of sin is the remedy. Now, I got to be honest. The first time that I read a verse like verse 5, I thought to myself, that's it? Simply, David just says, hey, I acknowledge my sin, didn't cover my iniquity, confessed my transgressions, and instantly, I'm forgiven. And, I, and, and, and for us who, who are self-righteous, we think, man, he, David didn't have to do anything to necessarily, like, like he didn't have to jump through hoops, he didn't, he didn't, you know, he didn't have to go through, you know, 40 ways of spiritual discipline, he didn't, you know, he didn't do, you know, he didn't read the purpose-driven life 12 times to try to get right with God. You're telling me all David did was confess his sin and iniquity, refuse to hide before the Lord, and the Lord imparted grace to him. I'll never understand. But what I do know is that because of the gospel, what we understand about God is the fact that repentance brings in and ushers in the, 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 the forgiveness of God. When I repent, I am, not, I am not having to earn my way back to God through works, but more so understanding that God's love and mercy and my repentance therefore yields me, brings me to a place of forgiveness. And that's what David acknowledged. He acknowledged that the confessions of his sin brought him into a place in which the Lord would receive him. It's as simple as confessing our sins and the Lord forgiving him. There was nothing that needs to be done. There was nothing you have to add to the process. God being who he is, doing what he does, brings that forward to us freely. And he wants us to pause on it because It's that understanding that we can get from verse 4, the groaning of day and night, keeping silent in our sins, to verse 5, understanding that just the confession over the things that we groan over brings about a freedom and a liberty of forgiveness that he wants to establish with his people. And I think that's why he takes... He tells us to take our times, to selah, to pause and meditate on how good 
the forgiveness of God is in its nature. Because he, un- he understands that um, in confession, he is quick to forgive. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Verse 6, we see uh, David's direction shift. In in the psalm where he goes from mediation he received from Christ and reconciling love from confession and repentance to David making the shift from personal testimony and doctrine to to application and instruction. David saying, therefore... Let everyone who was godly. It's the idea in which he makes the shift to say, I go from now personal testimony and what can be done uh, through this great grace to now instruct you on what needs to happen. He says and uses the word may be found as in to say make haste or do not wait forever is what he is trying to communicate. Where you may be found is this idea of this, this, don't, don't wait forever. Make haste. Go now. Let everyone who was godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. It's this idea of there is a, 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 a time in which God, some, God will not always offer you or grant you the ability to repent. Sometimes that is not always the case. There is not always a time in which God has your heart in a place where you were able to repent. I think um, that's a doctrinal stance which David is trying to take here. And he says, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Go where you may be found. Make haste. Go immediately. Verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The idea of the hiding place is found multiple times in Scripture. And in the Psalms, it virtually paints this picture as a place of refuge for the weary. A stop for those who are tired of running from sin and ultimately depicts God as an ultimate place of rest. That is how normally we are to interpret such things, as you are a hiding place for me. And David would know this better than anyone because he understands that at certain points in his life, David needed God to rescue him literally and physically from harms or danger. But he says, he uses this as a metaphor um, to establish his rest, his peace, and his deliverance, a time in which he can stop running from this idea and hide and know that if he is found, he's found in the one who he's hiding in. It's this idea of David using the examples of his personal struggles and putting a spin on them for us to understand 
that God is a refuge, a place that we can stop running from sin, stop trying to cover up what we have not confessed, and embrace this blessedness of forgiveness. He says, you preserve me from trouble, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. This idea in which God, as you rest in him, is preserving you from trouble and surrounding you with shouts of deliverance. There's an encouragement there, um, somewhat personified, whereas you're not literally getting shouts of deliverance, but it's while I rest in him, I find myself encouraged to know that I am delivered from myself. I am delivered from this plight of sin. Now, I will, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, verse 8 especially is where we see a direct parallel between Psalms 32 and Psalms 51. Uh, turn, if you may, Psalms 51 real fast, just to take a look here. And where we're getting at, I'm turning with you. And um, verses 12 through 14, um, deep is where we, this, 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 this example is where we see um, Psalms 51 a little bit more clearly. Verse 12, he says, Restore me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach your, your transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. So it's this idea in which scholars would believe that David is, is pointing back to that psalm as if to say that he's making good on the promise that he made to the Lord who has delivered him. This idea in verse 8 where he says, and I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go, and I will counsel you um, with my eye upon you, is him making good on what he, on what he um, screams and yells to the Lord, if only that he be restored. This is David now restored and making good on that promise. David understanding now that because he is in this place of having walked through this plight, he now looks to instruct us in the ways that we should go. Um, some would say that, I did read some slight interpretations, that some would say that verse 8 uh, transitions, and it could be the Lord speaking, but um, I do feel as though this is still David um, just making good on what he has said earlier in Psalms 51. Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Proverbs 26.3, you don't have to turn there, but uh, Proverbs 26.3 uh, uses the same type of language and it says, a whip for the horse and a bridle for the donkey and the rod for the back of fools. 
it's this idea where, verse 9, he uses this example of animals, the same example used in Proverbs, and actually explains this concept a little deeper. Ultimately, it's the idea, simple and plain, where David is instructing the reader to not be stubborn or, um, as he simultaneously saying, and don't let your stubbornness lead to your discipline because of it. Do not be like the horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed or will not stay near you. It's this idea if you 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 won't understand you if you're if you're if you're stubborn you won't understand or heed this instruction and then you'll have to be disciplined because of it. He, that's why he uses that example in verse nine. He's wanting them to understand that. He wants them to receive this instruction. He wants them to receive this this instruction this instruction of confession to inherit this blessed of forgiveness and do so without a grudging spirit or a grudging attitude. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding. Finally, verse 10 and 11, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Verse 10, David elaborates on the idea that only the redeemed and the forgiven of God feel free from despair and are truly happy that those who are wicked will still experience the sorrow from unconfessed sin and lack of redemption not applied to them because of their lack of repentance. But we understand that those who trust the Lord receive a steadfast love and it surrounds them, urging them, bringing them to a place of gladness because they know the righteous one. I liking what David is getting at in this verse to that of that of weightlifters. Anybody who's who's ever exercised, and you ever go to hit the bench, you go to lift, and as you lift, you realize you have a spot normally with you, if it's if it's a weight that you're not sure of, and as you go to lift, you realize, oh, I can't get this up mid lift. And then someone comes, they spot you, and they put it back on the bar. And for David, it, it, for me, it kind of is like this idea of it's the shame of you needing the spot, right? It's the shame of you needing because you're like, man, I should have been able to lift that. It's the shame of you needing it, but it's also the grace of you getting it, the relief of you getting it. You're like, oh, oh man, thanks. I appreciate it. There, there is a shame that we, that we sometimes feel. There is a sorrow that we sometimes feel in needing the grace of God because we feel like we can get to a place of gladness on our own or, or come to a place of redemption on our own. It's just not possible. But there is this relief 
and us receiving it and coming to the knowledge of, of understanding that it's okay that we can't carry the weight of this sin that we have. It's not, us, it's not ours to carry. We, in and of ourselves, are not strong enough to carry the weight of the sin. That's why Christ chose to carry it upon himself. Verse 11, we can only carry out David's command to shout for praise when we truly understand first the blessedness of forgiveness and how that works together intertwined with our confession of sin and our submission in repentance, which precedes the experience of our joy in him. It's the idea that we can't be glad in the Lord We can't shout for joy without understanding first why we should. And it's because we've been forgiven. So um, ultimately I pray that as we fix our hearts towards him, we can rejoice as the righteous do and shout for joy as we fix our hearts to the one who is upright. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you uh, for who you are. Lord, thank you for the blessing of forgiveness, the understanding to know that, Lord, when we hide our sin, when we go unconfessed, Lord, when we think that we can carry this plight on our own, God, you remind us still how good you are, how gracious you are towards us. And we are filled with thanksgiving And understanding, Lord, um, and appreciation for your grace, for being reminded that we are sinners, and that though we are the ones who were supposed to pay for our crimes, who were supposed to pay for our sins, you provided a grace for us, a forgiveness for us, that is found in repentance and an acknowledgement of our sin, which brings us back to the feet of the cross. Lord, I thank you for who you are for what you've done in each of our lives. And I pray that as we leave here, we are steadily encouraged upon the grace and the blessedness of forgiveness for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.